We are in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 15. 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 15. Last Sunday after Sunday school, my wife asked me what verse we left off studying. And I said, we never got out of verse 15. And we may not today. That happens from time to time. In fact, I get kind of excited whenever I see the text from which Brother Fulton is preaching, and it'll just be one verse, and I'll think, boy, he must have found a gold mine in there if we're going to be in that one verse, the whole message. I get excited if it's three verses, but I know how he feels being unable to get out of a verse. And we were studying the word vanity as it was used in that verse. And the Bible has so much to say about vanity. I think in seminary that would probably be worthy of a full semester of study, the word vanity all by itself. And the world embraces vanity. Have you noticed that? It really does. And the church has slowly and progressively allowed vain things to become its priority. Now, the Lord's church should never do that. And one of the marks of the Lord's church when we are obedient is that we don't let vain things enter. And we certainly don't let them stay and substitute for the spiritual things that ought to be our priorities. But unfortunately, preachers often preach vanity. You know, the Bible said they would. In fact, it said that such teachers would heap to themselves. They'd pile them up, heap to themselves those people who have itching ears. They want their ears tickled. That's what it is. They don't want to hear things that are deep and spiritual. And preachers will preach vanity, but they certainly wouldn't admit to it. If you ask the average preacher this morning before he takes the pulpit, or in some cases she, or in some cases we don't know, are you going to preach vanity today? Why, I doubt you could get any of them to say, I certainly am. They'd say, oh no, we're giving the people what they want or what they feel like they need. Well, Israel followed vanity, and they paid a heavy price for it. And God helped this church never to do that. And we'll only do it by staying true to his word, not by exalting ourselves, not by looking down our nose at others, but by humbly submitting ourselves to the study of his word and realizing that's all we need and that's what we need. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15... The Apostle Paul was writing to the church about the subject of the resurrection of the dead and the hope that we have because of it. And he presented a hypothetical situation in verses 13 through 19, and I'd like to read that to you. He said, But if there be no resurrection of the dead... 
then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. Now see, this is a hypothetical situation. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You might say our life is in vain. And there are at least two things we might learn from that passage. One, vain preaching leads to vain faith. Vain preaching leads to vain faith. And two, vain faith leads to condemnation. Vain faith leads to condemnation. If a person believes in something or in someone that cannot save, specifically that cannot save him from his sins, then his belief, his faith in that thing or in that person is vain. And so is the person or the thing in which he believes. So if a preacher gets up here and uses this precious time that he has in the pulpit, and he preaches something that cannot save a person from their sins, then his preaching is vanity. He's preaching vain. And everything we preach and everything we believe as Christians must be true. That doesn't mean that everything we believe is true, but it must be. In other words, you don't need to believe anything that's not true. And how will you know? The test of truth is whether it's what the Bible says. Now, there are other things that are true outside the Bible. There are things that are true. We know they are true by experience. We know that every time we touch our finger to a hot stove, it's going to burn our skin. And the Bible doesn't tell us that it will, but it's true. However, there are other things that we're told by scientists, by philosophers, by religious professors, and so forth, or things that are called old wives' tales. Guess what? They're old husbands' tales, too. They're things men say that aren't so. And in those situations, if we can't track them down in the Bible, then we may well have doubts about whether they're true. But whatever we track down in the Bible, whatever we read, we already know is true. And when we believe in those things, our faith is not in vain, even though the world will try to tell you it is. They'll say, oh, you believe in a bunch of fairy tales. Listen, Mr. Unbeliever, these so-called fairy tales are actually contained, written down in many of the history books that you say are true. Not that we need that to validate our faith, but it sure doesn't hurt to, for people to say, 
hey, there's a, there's a writing over here, there's a historical writing, and it says the same thing as the Bible does about what happened back in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and so forth. Well, hallelujah for that. But we don't believe about Sodom and Gomorrah because of what some historian wrote. We believe it because that's what the Bible declares. And in the matter of salvation, the truth is what the Bible says about Jesus. It's very narrow, isn't it? It excludes all other things that are said about how to be accepted by God. And you know Paul talked about what would be vain preaching if they testified of God who didn't raise the dead, and if they testified that the dead can be raised back to life and it weren't true, there would be vain preaching. Well, did you know there are people who preach about Jesus, they use the name of Jesus, and they are also preaching vanity. The Jesus who is preached in many religions is just a good man. To that religion. They'll admit that. The Hindus will accept Jesus and put him right up next to their other idols, their other 300 gods or however many they have. They must not be very powerful if they need that much help to make this world run. But the Bible says there's only one God. So even though a Hindu may say, oh, we love your Jesus. We accept your Jesus. Even Gandhi said that he loved our Christ. It was our Christians who were the problem. But Gandhi and any other who believed like he did would say there's more than one way. And that's vanity. The, the Muslim Quran says Jesus was righteous. They say that he was a prophet. They said he was a humble servant, but they denied that he was God in the flesh. But the Bible says Jesus is the express image of God, and that in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's not anything missing from Jesus, from the person of Jesus Christ. The unbelieving Jews in Jesus' day could not convict him of sin. He said, which of you convinceth me of sin? That's, that means to convict. They couldn't convince him of sin or convict him of sin. In other words, they had to agree that these things he did were righteous. The healing he did. But they would not believe he was God. So their belief about Jesus being a good man and being righteous in his acts was in vain because they denied he was God. And most people, most people on this earth, regardless of their religious affiliation or their lack thereof, would acknowledge that Jesus was a good man. And they would acknowledge that he set a worthy example for others to follow in the way that he loved everyone. But those people have hope in him only in this life. If he is nothing more than their example, than their role model, but he's not their savior, then they have no hope in him after this life is done. 
They don't trust him to resurrect them from the dead, only to be an earthly example. They don't believe he's God the Son. They don't believe he rose again from the dead and gave eternal life to as many as put their faith in him. So as Paul told the Corinthians, those people are of all men most miserable and their faith is in vain. Now look back in our text in verse 15, 2 Kings 17 verse 15, if you've just joined us on the internet. It says this about the children of Israel in the middle of the verse, and they followed vanity, which we looked at, and now, and became vain. When you follow vanity, then you act vainly. Everything you do is without a divine purpose. It's self-serving. It's earthy. Just like the man Esau who swapped his birthright for a bowl of pottage that his brother Jacob made him. These are people, these who become vain as the children of Israel in Samaria. These people who gain much wealth and power and influence and standing in the community only to covet more and more and more have become vain. They followed vanity and now they have become vain. They accepted vanity. They followed vanity. They became vain. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, now if you want to see the word vanity used over and over in the Bible, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is to everyone, but specifically I believe to the person who is prideful. To that one who thinks, man, I've got it made. I've got my health. I've got my wealth. I am powerful, well-known, influential. People love me. That's who that book is for. It's for everyone. But to the one who doesn't realize how vain his life is, Solomon said, all is vanity. And at the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 13 he sums it up this way. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He didn't mention anything in there about riches and power and wealth and all the wives and the concubines he had, his trophies. He said, fear God and do his commandments. That cross is all economic classes, racial barriers, gender. It crosses everything. It's the whole duty of man, all mankind, to fear God and to keep his commandments. So the whole duty of man is not to get rich. It's not to be strong and powerful and famous. You mean it's not to see who has the most expensive purse or who's the toughest fighter? Or who's the most intelligent scholar? No. It's to fear God and to keep his commandments. Yes, God blessed Abraham with great riches. So don't walk away thinking, well, I better get rid of some of my money. I'm, I'm in trouble with God. No, you're not. He gave Abraham great riches. 
And you read about that in several places in the Old Testament, how God blessed Abraham. But Abraham did not trust in those riches to be accepted by God. And he knew that doing so would be following vanity and becoming vain, just like the unbelieving children of Israel. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, give us a great insight into what it was that motivated Abraham. Abraham, the one whom God blessed with great riches. Abraham is, we get a, a good view of what was in his heart. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, and yes, I know he'd been dead for several thousand years by then. It said, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And that means spiritually speaking, if you study that passage out. Now I want you to listen to how Abraham, with his own voice, testified years after he was dead. This is a wonderful passage. And you find it in Matthew chapter 16. And you've probably been in church long enough to remember what was in that passage. And that was a rich man who fared sumptuously and and he was king of the hill when he was alive. And then a poor beggar named Lazarus. And the dogs licked his sores and he was a beggar. He was not rich by any means, at least not in the eyes of this world. And that man, Lazarus, that beggar, died and went to be with the Lord. In fact, that passage tells us he was in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and went to hell. Well, that's pretty clear cut, isn't it? Didn't say anything about either one of them going to purgatory because there's no such thing except in the minds of the Catholics. But I'm going to pick up in verse 23, so if you want to write Matthew 16, 23 in your notes. It says this about the rich man. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now get this. One rich man who's in hell lifted up his eyes and looked at another rich man, Abraham, who was in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that great? So this was a rich man who went to hell. Now, was he in hell because he was rich? No, he wasn't. Abraham was rich. Solomon was rich. And so was his father, David. Riches didn't condemn anyone to hell. Trusting in uncertain riches and not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ is what sent them to hell. And in Matthew 16, I'm still there. I'm going to read verses 24 through 25. And it said this about this rich man. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Notice he didn't say, lend me some money, did he? He said, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, 
and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Those good things the rich man received were the vain things after which he followed. Both the, the rich man and Abraham received good things. Both of them did. But one of them followed good things, and one of them did not. And listen to what this rich man realizes. Although it's too late for him, he begged Abraham, another rich man who didn't trust in uncertain riches, he begged Abraham to send Lazarus the beggar who never had riches and never trusted in riches. From the dead, he said, send him from the dead to tell my family about this awful place I'm in. I don't want them to come here. And in verses 29 through 31, Abraham answers this man. It says, Abraham saith unto him, they, that's this rich man's family still living, they have Moses and the prophets. Now what he meant by that wasn't that Moses was still alive walking around because Moses died before the children of Israel went into the promised land. When, they, when he says they have Moses, what he's saying is they have the writings of Moses. They don't have the prophets in person. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Haggai and Hosea about whom we are reading, all of them have been dead for years and years. But they have their writings. So when he said they have Moses and the prophets, what he's telling them is they have all the first five books of the Old Testament. They have the Psalms, the parts of the Psalms that Moses wrote. They have all that the prophets wrote. Let them hear them. And he said, now this is, imagine this. You've got a man who's in heaven. He's in the presence of the Lord. This is Abraham. And this rich man is in hell, and he is in no position to bargain with anyone. What he needs to do is listen, doesn't he? And he says, when Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. This rich man doesn't say, oh, please make sure they hear them. Please make sure they hear them. He said, no. He's arguing with Abraham. Who's in hell and who's in heaven right now? And the one in hell is the rich one in hell. Still has his pride intact. Still believes in vain things. He said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Now, let me, before I read the rest of that, let me ask you this. Did ever Jesus say, did ever the Old Testament say, that one will rise from the dead and go to them, and that's when they'll begin to believe him? No. Jesus did rise from the dead. The disciples did encounter him on the road to Emmaus. He was seen in the upper room. But these were among people who had already believed on him. In fact, they believed what the Old Testament prophets said about this virgin who would bring forth a son, and they should call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And that he would die for the sins of the world and would be buried in and be resurrected again. They had already believed that. 
And so this rich man comes up with his own religion again. He followed vanity while he lived, and now he's following vanity in hell. And he said, send somebody from the dead. They'll repent on his word. And Abraham said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I mean, after all, these same unbelievers, such as this rich man, had Jesus walking physically on the earth in their presence. They had God in the flesh. What more could you have in front of you than God in the flesh to make you believe? And yet most people in that day still did not believe. They crucified him. So the rich man who followed vanity and riches confessed one thing and that it was necessary for his family to repent. That's what he confessed. Even though he didn't believe they would repent at the hearing of Moses and the prophets, he still agreed with God about that one thing, and that was his family, his unbelieving family on this earth needed to repent. And while he lived, I'm sure this rich man and his friends couldn't talk enough about the stock market. Now, I'm not much of an economic expert, and conversations with me about the stock market won't last very long unless you know a whole lot more than I do, and you probably do. But that's not all I talk about. I'll go to something else after that and go to something else. I'd rather talk about this right here in front of me, the Bible. But I imagine those that rich man and his friends couldn't get enough of the price of gold and how much wealth they had. And Well, I've got two of these cars. Well, I've got four of them. As far as I know, you can only drive one at a time. And I know people in my county, and they've got 15 cars in a great big old barn, and they're scared to death somebody's going to touch one of those cars and scratch it. And they don't want to take it out and drive it anywhere. Now, I don't want anybody scratching my pickup, but that's what I drive. Well, it can get excessive, can it? And that's probably, they've talked about their chariots and their horses back then, their carriages. But in the torment of hell, this rich man here never tried to defend his riches, did he? He never did bring them up. He has been justly condemned for his unbelief, not for his riches. And both he and Abraham agree that this rich man's family needs to repent. But the rich man wants them to hear a new revelation from somebody who comes from the dead, Lazarus. And Abraham wants them just to believe the revelation that's already been given to them through Moses and the prophets. Speaking of following vanity, we also see that God blessed Solomon not only with riches, but with unrivaled wisdom. We're getting a good dose of that on Wednesday nights, aren't we? And while Solomon followed that wisdom, that is the wisdom of God, he did not follow vanity at that time. But as we sadly read in his life story that we've studied already, 
he began to try to please the many wives and concubines that he had. If they wanted a, an idol or a grove or an altar built, why, he'd just have it built for them instead of saying no. Now, if he'd have said no to the second woman who wanted him, he'd have been in a lot better shape. He didn't realize, Brother Billy, the limit on crappie is 25 in your possession at one time. You better not have more than that on your stringer. But I'm going to tell you what, the limit on wives is one. That's all you need. That's all you can handle. He had, between the wives and concubines, he had a thousand women. That's 999 too many, and some days it might have been a thousand too many. But listen to what 1 Kings 11 verse 4 says. This was so sad when we read it, and it's sad to read it again. 1 Kings 11 verse 4, For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Listen, men, whether you're here or listening on the internet, stop making it a priority to please your wife. Boy, I'd get all kind of stuff thrown at me. You might be holding back even now. Some would say, that's misogynistic. Well, I'm not as concerned about what it sounds like to the world as I am whether it's biblical. What should be at the top of your very short list is pleasing God. If what pleases God doesn't please your wife, then your wife needs to repent. And if what you do pleases your wife rather than pleasing God, then you need to repent. A godly wife, I remember Brother Roloff many years ago talking about one of the hallmarks of a godly wife. And, and I guess he knew a little bit of information about some of the men and women in this church where he was preaching. And knew that some of those men had been henpecked when it came to well, to just about anything, but to doing work for the Lord. And he said, you women who complain and gripe about your husband going out and serving the Lord and going witnessing, he said, you'd do a whole lot better if you'd pray for him while he's gone instead of griping at him when he leaves. And I said, amen to that right through the radio. And I bet he could have heard me if he'd have been alive at the time he was, that I was listening to it. But you know, a godly wife will pray for her godly husband to please God first. That'll be your prayer as a godly wife. You'll say, Lord, help my husband to please you first. And such a woman will be satisfied because her husband will then love her as Christ loved the church. Now, a man has more than one way he may think about expressing his love to his wife. One of them comes from his head or someone else's head or some book that a psychologist wrote about here's how you ought to treat your wife. And then another one comes from the Bible. And can you imagine married women and you young ladies who aren't married yet, what it would be like if you know the character of God, what it would be like if your husband loved you the same way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, you can't be loved any more than that. There's not a better way to do it than that. 
And so by praying that your husband, we haven't left our topic yet. We're talking about following vanity. By praying for your husband that he would first please God, you're actually praying that he would love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You're praying that he would love you like God loves you. And that's the highest kind of love there is. You think about that. And that's not vanity, that's virtuous. God gave Samson supernatural strength. But he forfeited it when he followed vanity, didn't he? He gave it up for 1,100 pieces of silver. That wicked harlot from Gaza named Delilah agreed with the Philistines, who were the enemies of the Jews, agreed with the Philistines to find out the secret to Samson's strength. And Samson finally gave in. You know why? Because he wanted to please his wife or his woman more than he wanted to please God. Listen to Samson's confession to Delilah about where he got his strength. She finally broke him down. In Judges chapter 16 and verse 17, Judges 16 verse 17, that he told her all his heart and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. There was absolutely no good reason for Samson to tell Delilah that. None at all. God had given him not only strength, sometimes we think of Samson as the strong one, and he was. But he was also wise. You may remember the riddle he put forth, the riddles he put forth for people to solve. And you look at those riddles and say, what does that mean? Yeah, he was, he was pretty sharp. And he also was given great authority to rule over Israel. I believe 20 years is how long he ruled over Israel. But for the vanity of pleasing this woman over God, Samson lost his strength, his throne, his sight, his dignity, and then finally his life. And as Solomon wrote at the end of Ecclesiastes, the whole duty of Samson, the whole duty of Solomon and of David and of you and of me is to fear God and to keep his commandments. It's not by throwing your... Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. If you don't do what it was that Solomon said at the end of Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments, guess what your life is? It's vain. You have lived a life in vanity. And you may say, man... Brother Andy, that describes most, maybe even all of my life. It doesn't have to stay that way. <laughs> You're still breathing air. You're still listening to God's Word being taught. If repenting today and living the rest of your life in fear of the Lord, observing His commandments, and of course we know the, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can't do that without loving His Son, Jesus. You can't love his son without believing that he died for your sins. That's where the starting place is for you. 
And all of those other things will come after it as God's Spirit dwells and works in you. We could go on with examples of gifts, talents that God gave men, some of which were used to honor God and some of which were used in vanity. I could tell you about Christian singers, and I say that, I don't know if they're Christians or not, but they said they were, who went from singing for the Lord to singing for the devil. And I mean, it just like happened with the drop of a hat, and I imagine money had a lot to do with it. And it's sad, because those people were given a talent, and they were given an audience and they were allowed to testify of the Lord's goodness through their songs. And some of them sought fame and fortune rather than just trusting God to meet their needs as they continued to serve Him. Rather than saying, no, I'm not singing that, that is not honor God, it disgraces Him. And giving up that fat paycheck, some of them went that way. So, what is the answer when it comes to avoiding following vanity? It's not by throwing your money away so you don't have riches. It's not to quit learning so you don't become wise. It's not by being a coward in order to keep from being courageous. And it's not by becoming weak so you don't have strength. No, riches and courage and wisdom... Strength, those are all gifts from God. And when those gifts are used for God, as He works through you to obey His commandments, then your life is not in vain. You won't accept vanity. You'll not follow vanity, and you won't become vain. That'd be the worst thing that could be said at my funeral, is if somebody says, List all these things that old Andy's done here on this earth. And not anything in there about that he was a servant of the Lord. That's really all that needs to be in there anyway. All that other stuff, you know what it is? It's vanity. How many years I worked here and what I did and the awards I got and the positions I held, all that's vanity. All that really matters in the sight of the Lord is what did I do for him? What did I do... What did he do through me? That's what matters, and that's not vain. Now, what specifically might we expect out of these children of Israel who followed vanity, who became vain? Well, let's learn our answer from Romans chapter 1. Write down Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. 21 through 25. Speaking about... These vain people, Paul wrote, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, listen to this, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man. That's exactly what Samaria was doing. They went to Assyria. They loved the idols. They loved the great altar. 
They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The people who had become vain did not glorify God. They were not thankful to God when they knew him. And the word but in that verse that I just read tells us that their rejection of God was their acceptance of vanity. That's how that works. You reject God, you don't go to the neutral corner. You, ex- you reject God, you accept vanity. The so-called wise are now fools. They had wisdom, and in the eyes of man, they were wise. But in the eyes of God, they were foolish. And they should be in our eyes, too. Don't ever get too impressed with somebody. You'll find yourself following them more than you should. You'll find yourself believing things they say because you have believed something they said before. Be very careful about idolizing people. Now, don't raise your hand if you've ever done this, but I've never been an autograph seeker of any kind. I don't care who's signing the autographs. I don't disdain the people, but I don't need for somebody to write in my book their autographs so I can go around and say, oh, look, I got so-and-so, this great athlete's autograph, or this famous person, look, I have his autograph framed up. I don't have that. You know the most precious autographs I have and any of the books I have are the ones that my mom and dad got me when I was a little boy or the hymnal that my granny gave me before she passed away. It was a Baptist hymnal. I said, Granny, I want one of those old Baptist hymnals uh, for birthday or Christmas or whatever it was. And she gave me one and signed it. Or the things my wife signs or the the books that Brother Fulton, I haven't asked him to autograph that. Those are precious autographs to me. Those are people who I love. But you know, you get to following people because of who they are and what they've done. You're following vanity. And so the, the people that Paul wrote about, just like Israel, God said, all right. You want to follow vanity? You want to become vain? I'm going to give you over to your uncleanness. I'm going to show you what the end of that is, what that looks like. And back in our text, I'll read this verse or this part of the verse, and then we'll close. Back in verse 15, it says, And became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them. And that's where we will pick up next week as we continue. We're still in verse 15. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the depth of your word. Thank you for how you reveal your truth to us. And the more we read a passage, the more we study a truth, the more we learn, such that we sometimes have a hard time going to the next verse. But, Lord, we're not in any hurry, and we thank you for guiding us into all truth, for teaching us, and now I pray you'd help us to remember it and to meditate upon it and apply it in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.